Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. The Middle East is once more at war. Still reeling from the shock of Hamas's raids, Israel has bombarded Gaza from the air for 10 days straight, the reality of Palestinian suffering playing out daily on television stations and social media across the world. A ground invasion is said to be imminent, a red line for Iran, and its Lebanese affiliate Hezbollah, who have promised to respond in kind. For Israel, the fear of walking into a trap laid by Hamas is real. For Iran, Lebanon and Syria, an escalation risks drawing them into the fighting, expanding the war into a region-wide conflagration. And for the Gulf states, the Hamas attack has upended a careful political process years in the making. To understand the dynamics of play, and the military strategy still to come, we spoke to three analysts from across the Middle East about what the outbreak of war means for the already delicate diplomatic dance between the three powers, and the choices their leaders will face in the coming days and weeks. We asked Meirav Zonshain in Israel how the military leadership would respond to such a public undermining of its ability to protect the borders. In Riyadh, we asked Aziz al-Ghassian how the Gulf states would respond as Palestinian casualties escalate and where, in particular, this war leaves the normalization process with Saudi Arabia. But first, I began by speaking to Ali Hashim, a journalist for Al Jazeera English and a columnist at Al Monitor. He spoke to me from southern Lebanon amid escalating clashes, from where he has been reporting since the start of the conflict. And I started by asking him what the mood was like in the towns and villages along the border. Yeah, actually, I'm in Naqura on the Lebanese-Israeli border. Yeah. The whole, the past eight days, even more, 10 days, we've been witnessing on daily basis attacks from Lebanon, retaliation from Israel. Today, also, there was an attack, at least where we were, where we are in Nakura, there was an attack on an Israeli post, with several guided missiles, and then Israel retaliated on the vicinity of the village. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very tense. Situation is escalating, but... Given the fact that there is kind of deterrence on both sides, we, it doesn't seem that this escalation is really getting deep in mm. geography. So Israel isn't bombarding more than one kilometer or two kilometers depth within the Lebanese territories. And Hezbollah at the same time on its own allies. And this is another thing to talk about because we have now more than one player on the Lebanese side. Yeah, uh, There are also a kind of limiting their hits and their uh, targeting to Israeli military targets. And this seems Mm. to be, for now, the rules of engagement, because now these are new rules of engagement. Just before the war started in in Gaza, there were different rules of engagement. And even when Hezbollah started the attacks on the 8th of October, it was in Shiba Farms. That's part of the old rules of engagement. Then we saw Islamic Jihad getting into the the game and attacking from the blue line. That's not a disputed area. That's not a place, uh, an area regarded by the Lebanese government, Lebanese under Lebanese sovereignty. No, it's a different situation. Then we saw Hamas launching missiles. And today, it was really surprising to see Al-Fajr forces, the military wing of Jama'a al-Islamiyya or Lebanon's Muslim Brotherhood claiming responsibility for an attack on an Israeli military post in South Lebanon. 
That is intriguing. I mean, what do you... So they talk about these clashes being the most critical escalation since the the 2006 war. Your interpretation on the ground is that they seem to be fairly limited geographically. What is your interpretation for why these other groups are are now joining in? Well, indeed, it's it's the most uh, remarkable, significant escalation since 2006. And actually, it's kind of mixing the cards for the first time since then. But actually, the, the 7th of October attack and its uh, implications just put aside all the, the rules of engagement, changed the whole situation in the Middle East. This is unprecedented. And that's why I think that Hezbollah, I mean, there are strong allies of Hamas, and Hamas and Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad, they're all part of this one axis led by Iran. Mm. So my analysis is that Hezbollah and, and Iran saw that the attack on the 7th of October was too wide, too broad, too big for Hamas alone to take it on its burden. It can't really handle it alone. And they were trying to maybe, I mean, was it part of the plan? This is another issue. If there was a plan, uh, uh, the whole axis was on, uh, on the same page which is something I have a lot of kind of scrutiny over. I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure that it's, it's the case. But the fact is that they are trying to draw pressure, try to do, draw pressure to the north, relieve Gaza from the pressure, try to complicate the ground offensive. As of the beginning, they understood that Israel is going for a ground offensive. So how to try prevent this ground offensive by creating another front in the north. And with cre- by creating this other front in the north, Israel will have to think several times before starting a ground, ground offensive. And the world will have to also think of uh, this multi-front confrontation, because this is not going to be only a, a Gaza war. This is going to be a semi-regional war. And the semi-regional war would mean a lot of things. Just look at the geography, the vast geography, the axis led by Iran, so-called axis of resistance, is controlling. They're controlling a geography that extends from Iran to Iraq to Syria, Lebanon, and go to the south, you have Yemen. So will Israel be able to control all these this geography? Just in case, let's assume, for example, there are rockets on the border between Syria and Iraq launched towards Israel and rockets from Yemen. I'm just assuming. Yeah. So this is going to be really crazy for Israel to handle. But that's a and, major escalation you're talking about. I mean, bringing yeah, I mean, in Houthi missiles is it's a, yeah, it's more than a reason. Whether Iraqi or, or Houthi, both of them made speeches committing to themselves to a battle, just in case Hezbollah on the northern front is going to engage in such a, a battle. We're just going to see something different. It's not going to be skirmishes like these days. What's happening mm. right now in South Lebanon is, is mainly skirmishes, uh, attacks, tit for tat, um, new rules of engagement, uh, but a contained escalation. You can't call it a war zone, actually. We can go there. We can, we see, I mean, just go from, I don't know if Lebanon, but if you just yeah. 
across from Nakura towards Tyre, which is like 20 kilometers, life is normal in Tyre. Mm. Restaurants are open, normal life. But for example, in Nakura, yeah, things are different. People, like let me say, 70% of the people of Nakura has left, have left. If right. you go towards Al Mashab, which is just after Nakura, it's a Christian town, almost 90% of the people are left. If you go mm. to Dhaira, which is a Sunni village, and this is how the, 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 the classification here is for the villages, they've also left. So this line, this borderline, 120 kilometers of borders between Lebanon and, and Israel, yeah, there is tension. But if you go a bit uh, down, life goes back to normal. So it's not, it sounds, it's not a war. Yeah, it it's sounds a, like operation zone. An operation zone, yeah. It sounds like the all of these different factions are kind of weighing what the military strategy ought to be. And so at the moment, it sounds like, as you say, they're trying to take a little bit of the pressure off Hamas, but that's mm -hmm. all they want to do. They don't want to actually escalate it into some direct attack that Israel has. Yeah. Absolutely. And at the same time, seeing other factions playing from the Lebanese territories or launching attacks from the Lebanese territories, especially when it comes to Palestinian factions such as Hamas and Islamic Jihad, I think this is directed towards the international community, towards Americans, towards the French, that, look, if you're not going to pressure Bibi in, in Israel and ask him to hold his horses, then the status quo on the Lebanese borders is going to change. Mm. And there, there are going to be new elements there. there. There's going to be a new situation there. And you'll see the Palestinians for the first time since 1982 openly launching attacks from the Lebanese side. And the last time the Palestinians were really active on the border were, was when the PLO was here in Lebanon. After mm -hmm. the 1982 invasion of Lebanon, Israel's invasion of Lebanon, the PLO had to go. They were expelled. And then it was mainly Lebanese factions fighting from the border. First of all, the Communist Party in Lebanon, Amal Movement, the PSSNP, and then Hezbollah's rise and taking yeah. over the monopoly of resistance from South Lebanon. So now we're seeing it something different. And today, with the Fajric forces claiming responsibility, I mean, it's not a, it's not a major operation, but just the fact... Just that the fact that they've done seeing, so is something... Yeah, yeah. This pool of forces playing from Lebanon, yeah, there's something different. It's difficult because it's difficult to predict, obviously, what will happen. And there's always the risk that something will escalate, as we saw with the, the bombing of the hospital, which I'll come to. Yeah, but sure. I'm trying to understand if there is a second front opened to the north, what is the strategy of, of Hezbollah in doing so? By which I mean, are there specific military or political objectives that they want to achieve against Israel? Or would it simply be, well, there's this fight going on, why don't we join in? Hezbollah is a rational player. And Iran is a rational player, despite the fact they're ideologues. But they're pragmatic when it comes to real politics. So it's, it's mm. not that they want to join the fight. And I think they prefer not to get into such a fight and just continue accumulating power, stockpiling weapons, and not getting into this now, or at least choosing the right time by themselves. Right. But the fact is that to Iran, to Hezbollah, the annihilation of Hamas if Israel is to annihilate Hamas and take Gaza, yeah. then 
they are going to be next on the list. At least this is the thinking. And I saw this in what the Iranian foreign minister was saying in his interview with Ofuq TV, the, the TV that's for IRGC in Iran. So it was clear, we have to fight in Gaza so that we don't fight in our cities. And then he quoted Hassan Nasrallah, Hezbollah's secretary general saying, if we have to fight in Gaza, then for Gaza we'll fight so that we don't fight for Beirut. And this narrative is just the same narrative that the Iranians used back in 2013 or 2012 when they were trying to push forward their intervention in Syria. The Iranian supreme leader then said, we're fighting in Aleppo and Mosul so that we, are, we don't fight in Kerman Shah. Interesting. It's this very same argument. So you think yeah. that there would be a political logic to Hezbollah getting involved in the Hamas conflict? Just in case the, the Israelis are going to cross the red lines. I mean, I can't say because we don't have all the picture clear in front of right. us. Right. I mean, we're only at the we, beginning we of the war. Yeah. There isn't a ground offensive yet. Actually, yeah, we don't know. We don't know if this war is at, at the beginning or at the end, really. I mean, after yesterday, yeah, yeah. Uh, the logic of Israeli wars is that whenever there's a big massacre, then the second day, third day, we'll go towards a, a kind of a truce or... But it's not the case because they already started the war with 1,500 or 1,400 people killed, Israelis killed. So the thinking in Israel is different this time. They're not starting a war with just like few soldiers killed and they can just retreat. It's mm. a different situation. A different situation. Now, right now is just like a wounded lion or an injured lion. And at the same time, he has this horrible feeling towards revenge. He wants to revenge, but at the same time, he's playing gamble. He doesn't know what, what might happen. You'll start a war, but who knows how a war will end? We all know yes. how the war in Iraq, how the war in Afghanistan, how the war in Lebanon 2006, all these wars. You can start it. Who knows how it ends? Well, actually, a good example of that is is the war that Hezbollah fought with uh, the IDF in 2006, which was an unexpected ending, uh, which most in Israel would not have expected this kind of fight to a standstill. But has the group changed a great deal? Does that mean that the war, if there were an escalation, a war today would be better for the Hezbollah or would it be worse? Because they've been fighting a lot in Syria. Well, war for everyone isn't something good. So I don't think that Hezbollah wants a war. But if we are to compare Hezbollah of 2023 to 2006, yeah. we're talking about a different league. Hezbollah but in which direction, Ali? Yeah, the, yeah. several. I'll, let you, I'll, I'll explain. Yeah, tell me. In 2006, Hezbollah was mainly, let me say, the, the full-time fighters were like 2000 around Lebanon, full-time fighters. They had maybe uh, a few other thousands of uh, volunteers, but the main fighter, the core, were like 2,000. Besides, the quality of weapons they had that time were far below the ones they have now. So what, there was a drastic change in Hezbollah, mainly after the beginning of the Syrian uh, revolution and then Hezbollah's intervention and Iran's inter intervention in Syria. And Hezbollah since then was started stockpiling a new kind of, of uh, missiles. And Israel was actually complaining. And 
the main, mainly the, the, the Israeli attacks on Hezbollah in Syria were aimed at preventing Hezbollah from getting those precision missiles into Lebanon. And Hezbollah right. and succeeded in getting them into Lebanon. And that's why Hezbollah was not retaliating to Israeli attacks on their convoys, weapon convoys in Syria, because they didn't want to engage in a side battle while their main concentration was on getting these weapons into Lebanon. So this is one. Now, also Hezbollah over, over the past years, I mean, put aside the, the missiles and maybe tens of thousands, if not, I mean, maybe in 2006, they had two tens of thousands of Katyushas and other kind of mid-range like Khaybar and Rad. But now we're talking about missiles. He said, Nasrallah said that, that can hit Ilat, which is just south of Israel. So they have maybe 300, 400 kilometers. Maybe they have Fatah, the Iranian missile. I mean, we, we don't know precisely what kind, but if Iran is providing Russia with the, the Shahid uh, drones, then right, of course Hezbollah right. would have the Shahid drones. And mm. if the Yemenis, the Houthis, and Qatar Hezbollah have drones that can go to Aramco and hit Aramco without being spotted by the by Patriot, then this is possible. They have, of course, they'll have it here. So this picture is, of course, clear for the Israelis on this side. Now, the other thing is that the number of fighters that they got during the past years is also huge. And Nasrallah said he has tens of thousands of fighters. And given the fact these fighters had the experience of Syria, where they fought in, on different terrains. They went to Iraq when Daesh entered Mosul in 2014. They went to Yemen, and they had this experience with the Yemenis there in fighting the Saudis. So we're talking about, I mean, as, as I told you, it's a different league, a different mm. army, a different quality of fighters. So probably this is what Israel is kind of anticipating and very concerned of. Of course, yeah. Hezbollah knows that Israel also isn't. Israel also has been boosting its power over the past years. So we, we're talking about two very different, yeah, two very different, but at the same time, two deterred because both of them deterred the other. Hezbollah deterred Israel and Israel deterred Hezbollah. Both of mm. them do not want to test each other. The other aspect of this, which can influence the politics is the public mood, which can end yeah. up pushing actors towards doing things that perhaps they don't want to do that's not in their best interest. And mm -hmm. we've seen a huge response across the region just in the last day. For listeners, we are recording this the day after the Baptist Hospital in Gaza was bombed. So already you can see that there's a shift in the public mood. Do you think that will play into the political calculations among Hezbollah and other factions in Beirut? Well, I really can't give an answer to this. I don't know, frankly, because it, do it doesn't really depend on how much the decision is going to be popular as much as it, how much Hezbollah's interest and the Axis's interest and Iran's interest is in involving in such an a battle. And as I told you, the, the thinking right now is that if Hamas uh, fell, then they are the next. So is this going to be the factor that pushes Hezbollah towards engaging in such a battle? 
And how is this going to happen? Is Hezbollah going, just going to put the rockets and hit an Israeli city or a couple of Israeli cities with missiles? Or it's going to continue this gradual escalation? Because we saw phase one last week with maybe one attack, two attacks a day. And now, which I claim that we are in phase two, because based on my observation, given I've been here for the whole duration of the escalation, now yeah. we're seeing five and six attacks every day. Yeah, things are becoming different. Are becoming different and just in a week and a half. Yeah, and still, okay, still it's limited geographically, but not necessarily, I mean, with the number of attacks on daily basis, things might get out of control. Imagine, yeah. Faisal, for example, Israel hitting a Lebanese home and killing 10 people. Yeah. There's a massacre. Yeah. Or yeah. Hezbollah hitting by mistake also, kind of a, a, a civilian house or whatever, and yeah. killing five, six people. Yeah. Who, who can control the escalation? Yeah, yeah, no, this is, well, this is what I meant about the Baptist hospital, because it has an impact how the public mood reacts, whether in Israel or in Lebanon or in Gaza. These things change the calculation of these political actors. Absolutely. The other, we'll get to Iran, but the other country I wanted to talk about was Syria, because mm -hmm. the, the Assad government has a, its own problems, but it also has close ties to Iran and Hezbollah. And mm -hmm. having those relationships are important for it to preserve the regime. In one sense, as a, things are going well for Assad, he's got this return from diplomatic isolation. And on the other, so he wouldn't necessarily want to have anything change that. On the other hand, a confrontation with Israel could make him very popular and in the wider region too. So I wonder how you assess the thinking within Damascus. I don't think that anything has changed in Damascus with respect to engaging with Israel in a confrontation. Hmm. That's not on the table. That's not on the table. Now, there's something different here, is that the front in Syria isn't completely under Assad. It's mainly with Hezbollah and Iran, and they've both invested over the past year. Actually, their main fight in, in Syria to keep Assad was to keep this line, the, the lifeline for Hezbollah, to get the weapons all the time to, mm. to, to Lebanon. And at the same time, to be able to be present on the border there in, in the Golan, in, in the Golan, in the Kunaitra and all these areas. Yeah. So my point of view is that with the infrastructure that was laid by Iran and Hezbollah, it's them who call the shots there. And it's not going to be uh, Assad or anyone. Now, of course, they will take into consideration, of course, but as for now, as far as this battle hasn't get, got into a, a war situation, as far as we are just witnessing this operation situation, which is not yet a war. Yeah. I think they will take into consideration not to involve him directly. But as we saw last week, two rockets were launched from Syria. Another, and also two shells were launched from Syria. And the Israelis were retaliated immediately because they didn't want to give a kind of a wrong impression that they are going to be resilient or to keep silent on them. No, they, they went, they hit the airport in Damascus, they hit the airport in Aleppo. The second time they hit the airport in Aleppo. So they were, they wanted to send a clear message. 
mm. that we're not going to tolerate this. But how much this is going to continue, I don't know. Okay, well, let's turn to Iran. In the beginning, I was we were sort of started to talk about exactly how much Iran knew and how much it was directing. What is your analysis of it? You saw that at the time, at the very beginning of the of the Gaza war, people were saying, oh, the Iranians are behind this. And actually, it was interesting that the Israelis and the Americans came out quite strongly to say, look, we don't have any information that the Iranians did orchestrate this. How do you interpret the role of Tehran? Well, my point of view, there is an axis. Hamas is part of this axis, but Hamas doesn't have to report to Iran on whatever it's doing. And we've seen over the past years that there is a kind of independency for these parties playing, the, the local players for like Hamas, like Hezbollah, like the Iraqi Qatar Hezbollah, or Asaib, all these parties or organizations of factions playing on the ground. They have a slight space to maneuver within. The issue is that I think with respect to the 7th of October attack, Hamas would have briefed Iranians, Hezbollah, that there is a major escalation coming. And mm. I would want you to be in my back. I think there, there should have been a, at least heads up. Something big is coming. But I don't think that they gave them the plan because take into consideration, especially, I mean, I, I saw several reports, whether the Wall Street Journal, whether others, giving kind of scenarios that do not really look realistic. Over the past years, it was clear that Israel has infiltrated the Iranians, Hezbollah, on several levels. And if Hamas is to reveal such a plan openly in front of everyone and tell the axis, the whole axis, we are doing so and so. Yeah. Most probably this plan would end with the Israelis before even they start the operation. It would have leaked for so, sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So given the fact that such plans, such attacks need a lot of secrecy, I, I personally think that Hamas had this plan within like four or five people. They were in control. They knew what to do. And they had cluster, let me say, forces, clustered forces. Each force will have to do something, but without knowing the main objective. But at least they gave a heads up to the Iranians, to Hezbollah. Guys, big, something big is coming. Just have our back. And, and how that's do you... Why yeah, and how do you think Iran is looking at it now as it starts to become clearer what is happening with this potential ground invasion? Do you think that they think this is an opportunity for them to prove their axis of resistance uh, bona fides? Or do you think that the Iranian leadership would prefer that this hadn't happened at all? Well, I think that they wanted to, to go towards uh, a kind of an escalation with Israel. I don't think they are like... They have regrets over it. But at mm. the same time, they didn't really expect it to be this big. This, but, but just explain why. Big. Yeah, but just explain why you think the Iranians would, would want this confrontation. How does it benefit them? Well, an escalation in the region will revive their, their role in the region more and more, especially if we see how things were fading in the past few years. 
especially also after Syria, things changed for Iran for Iran a uh, lot, uh, despite the fact they they created a kind of a leverage in, in several countries, but on the popular side, on even uh, you know as their role in the region, they 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 were like uh, having a lot of setbacks. So a major escalation with Israel is meant on many, let me say, is meant on a multi-level situation, whereas they can send several messages to Israel, especially that they've gone through a lot in the past years. Israel has uh, assassinated several of their uh, leaders, because Fakhri Zad, for example, in Iran, and another one from the Quds Force, uh, Israel has taken their, their archive, their nuclear archive, uh, on several occasions, there were attacks inside Iran. So, I mean, this is on the Iranian side. At the same time, they, of course, they have objectives. I mean, this axis isn't there just to to create leverage. There, is, there, there should be something. There should be a, a result. And we've been see, seeing how the Iranians uh, were boosting the uh, resistance in the West Bank. And the, 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 Palestine, the Israelis have been... Uh, accusing the Iranians on several occasions of trying to create a, a kind of a resistance in the West Bank. And in the past few months, we've seen a lot of change in the situation there. So, yes, as part of this rivalry, of this enmity with Israel, they would want to see Israel in a weaker position, weaker situation. And the stronger their allies are on different, different fronts, the stronger they are. If Hamas is capable of getting 14, 15 Israeli soldiers and then going for a, a, a swap, and this is a, a kind of a victory for Hamas. But, but Ali, aren't, that, yeah, aren't things on. moving in Tehran's favor in some ways? I mean, they have this, this peace with the Saudis. The, yeah. Their ally in Damascus is now being reintegrated into the Arab fold. In yeah. some ways, it seems like Tehran doesn't really want to have this escalation. They because it resulted, for example, in six billion in funds being frozen. They could have used that money. I mean, I wonder why the escalation benefits the Iranians in particular at this moment. What if they wanted to normalize with the whole region in order to have such an escalation? They explain. Uh, I mean, getting into good terms with the Saudis getting Assad to have a better situation in the region in order, uh, whenever there is a major escalation like this, that they are not they're not alone. I mean, at least politically. And we can see right now, the Iranians aren't alone politically. So they are coordinating with the Saudi. Israel is the one isolated in the region. It's not Iran that one, that's the one isolated in the region. And allies of, of Iran are right now the ones that the streets are looking towards to save Palestine. So in the bigger picture, this is a success for Iran and its own allies and its own axis. Ali Hashem there speaking to me from southern Lebanon. Israel's strategy is still evolving as the situation remains in flux. The Hamas attacks caught the intelligence community by surprise and left the country reeling. As the Netanyahu government shifts gears to respond, it faces mounting pressure at home and abroad to provide answers. To understand where the war might go in such uncertain times, my colleague Joshua Martin spoke to Mayrab Zonshine, 
an Israeli-American journalist based in Tel Aviv and senior analyst on Israel-Palestine for the International Crisis Group. He began by asking her how Israel's strategic priorities had changed after the Hamas attacks. Hi, Meirav. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So the Hamas attacks on October 7th caught Israel very much by surprise, with intelligence officials admitting that they hadn't really anticipated anything like it. So before we talk about the response to those attacks, I'd like to start by talking a bit about where the country stood on the evening of October 6th. What were Israel's strategic priorities before the attacks and how have they changed in the past week or so? Right. So as you said, Israel was taken by surprise and on the ground at that moment in time, it took hours before IDF forces were there or even police were on the ground. And one of the reasons for that is that much of Israel's IDF forces were stationed in the West Bank, which has seen an uptick in violence over the last few months and year. It's been the, the deadliest year for Palestinians in the West Bank. There's also been an uptick in attacks on Israelis and There's also been a lot of settler violence backed by uh, soldiers in the West Bank, settlers who go out into different areas and provoke and vandalize and harass and sometimes assault or kill Palestinians. And this is uh, often guarded by IDF forces. So that's where much of the intention was on a ground level. And then on a more macro level, Israel has been talking about the threat from Iran for many years. So, and of course, that has to do also with the proxies in Lebanon and, and other issues and in other fronts. But Gaza was the, I think, the last thing on its mind. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, we're in a very dangerous moment right now, and the situation is far from stable. And it's not really clear yet what Israel's strategy actually is, or if it even has one. Yeah. So far, the IDF's been bombarding the Gaza Strip for almost two weeks, right? But at the time we're recording this, at least, the anticipated ground invasion hasn't yet begun, and officials aren't commenting on the reasons why. Now, it's perfectly possible this could be for genuine operational reasons, but it also does seem possible that Israel just doesn't really have a coherent plan here, right? Yes, I mean, I certainly also, I don't have any insider information. Even some of the most veteran military commentators, analysts don't really understand what's really happening. That could be because Israeli leaders themselves haven't decided or don't know what's happening. I think it's very important to underscore that before this happened, we were in a constitutional crisis here in Israel. The prime minister is on trial for corruption, and he's also formed the most far-right government in history. The last 10 months has seen the mass protests in Israel, has seen the security echelon go pretty much against the political echelon former top security officials in Israel speaking out against Netanyahu, people saying they no longer trust him to run the country. And this was all before last October 7th, last Saturday. So we were in a situation in which Israel's entire uh, leadership and body politic was in disarray. So it's certainly the case uh, now that in this narrow war cabinet that now includes uh, a member who's been in the opposition, Benny Gantz, who used to be the IDF uh, chief of staff and defense minister under Netanyahu and is now his rival, they together are sitting in a room trying to come up with a strategy. And it's very likely that they're arguing and that they're having a lot of uh, discord. Although I will add to that, that on the consent on Israeli policy on Gaza, I think there's actually a consensus in that room that they've all been through this before where they don't have long-term strategy, where they bombard the strip without much of an end game. 
So on that level, there may not be much disagreement. But certainly the Israeli uh, leadership and the military uh, echelon is scrambling to come up with a response. And there are many factors that they have to deal with. Obviously, the humanitarian disaster in Gaza is one of them. The hostages is another. The U.S. involvement, now that Biden has come to Israel and said that it's clearly behind Israel's attempt or objective to topple Hamas and rule out its capabilities militarily. The question is if that's even feasible and how long it will take. So this ground invasion that they've been talking about and hasn't happened yet, there could be reasons that, like you said, operational reasons. Maybe they're preparing in a way that's more strategic than we understand. But at this point, it's it's very hard to know what's happening behind closed doors. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Netanyahu, actually, because I did want to ask you more about him. But first, I wanted to ask you about a quote I heard from an IDF spokesman, mm-hmm. Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, who told The Telegraph that, quote, we have to break off from the old Gaza tit for tat. It's going to look different. It is going to take longer and it's going to look totally different. These plans are being developed. They'll be decided by and presented by our political leadership. So it does sound like there is some recognition, right, that the old strategy of just bombarding Gaza for a few weeks until it cools down again, there seems to be recognition that that can't keep happening anymore, that they need to do something new. Well, I mean, as far as the Israeli kind of consensus, as far as the Israelis are concerned, Hamas has to be completely wiped off the planet, right? That's the kind of consensus that we're hearing from the leadership. We're hearing very incendiary and genocidal language in general about Gaza, but specifically that Hamas has to be wiped out. Again, I don't know if that's possible, but I mean, clearly this was a game changer. It was the most, you know, horrific and in terms of numbers, the worst attack on Israel ever. And so... So the level of trauma and the undermining of Israel's sense of security being the superpower in the region cannot be stressed enough. So yes, it's a game changer. Clearly, it's not going to be another operation. The question, of course, though, is in the details, right? So what can it actually achieve? And given all the constraints, which includes threats from the north, and like I said, Biden having his hand in this now as well, there's just a lot of different constraints, not to mention popular protests and uprising in the Arab street, in Jordan, in Egypt, in Lebanon, in other places, not to mention Israel's normalized relations with the UAE and its hopes to normalize with Saudi Arabia. There's just so many factors involved here that I I assume from a military perspective, Israel has the capacity to wipe out Hamas. But what will come in its stead is a huge question. That's something I think that Biden. A very big question. Yeah, Biden brought it yeah. up while he was here. The end game. That's something that I'm pretty sure Israel doesn't have a clear path for at this point. And who's going to provide electricity and water to the Strip? But I mean, who's going to do that now is also unclear. So it's yeah, it's kind of a big mess. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. Uh, so. We'll break it down uh, into parts. I mean, you talked about Netanyahu earlier, so let's start there. Because the political, the domestic politics are a complicating factor here. I mean, Netanyahu's built his career, right, on a very uncompromising security for attitude towards Palestine. And this happened on his watch. So he sort of had the opposite of what George Bush had after 9-11 in terms of his approval ratings. I mean, I think 75% of Israelis said last week that the government bore most of the responsibility for the attacks. And 56% have said that he should resign following the conclusion of the fighting. It doesn't look good for him. And I wonder whether you think 
that part of the strategic consideration here will be just Netanyahu trying to save his career, right? If he plays oh, his cards right. Absolutely. I mean, he, like you said, he's not popular and he wasn't popular before this, and he's even less popular now. And I'm, that's an understatement. There are many victims of the attack, families of hostages who have called on him to resign, who said that they don't trust him to lead this. The problem is that we're in a kind of crisis right now and like the actual logistics of how he would be removed from power in some way are, are not clear. But I do think that this in some ways spells the end of his career. I'm not really sure also that he can deliver the kind of victory per se that Israelis will say, oh, okay, now things are fine. He can stay in power. So I'm not sure that he will survive this. It might take some time, but certainly there's there's no trust in him to lead this because he brought up upon a situation that led to the failure and the failure to prevent this. There are other actors, of course, involved. It's not just Netanyahu. It's years of a destructive and problematic Israeli policy. Also, many people point out that Netanyahu himself and the right in general in Israel have propped up Hamas for years and kept it kind of going uh, against the Palestinian Authority as well because yes. they don't want to negotiate a two-state solution because Hamas is a perfect alibi for never engaging with uh, the Palestinians on a whole or with the Gaza Strip specifically. So there's different factors involved here, but I don't see how Netanyahu can come out of this on top. And I'm positive that his number one priority right now is his own legacy and getting himself out of this mess. Yes. And the other thing that you brought up earlier was the geopolitical context. I mean, it, Israel's in a very delicate diplomatic position with regards to both its friends and its enemies. At the start of operations in Gaza, the Western backers at least seem to be offering more or less unconditional support. But we're already seeing those, con those positions moderate somewhat. And then, of course, like you say, there's Israel's relationship with Arab states like Jordan, Egypt, the UAE, and of course, Saudi Arabia. I mean, many of these states have good relations with Israel, their populations not so much. And the mounting civilian death toll in Gaza is putting substantial domestic pressure on these governments to engage. And then, of course, there is the threat from Iran, which is probably the most immediate concern right now. There's a lot here, but I wondered if you could talk a bit about how Israel is or isn't managing to balance these diplomatic concerns with the demands of its military operations. Well, I think a lot of this has yet to be seen because we're it. The one thing that Israeli officials keep saying is that this is going to be a very long process, that this operation is going to last a very long time. I think some unnamed official could said it could take years. So if we saw what we saw just in the last 10 days in terms of the hospital bombing, for which we still don't know who is responsible, we're still discovering bodies in Israel and different levels of torture and suffering that were done to these bodies that I think we don't comprehend yet. We're still trying to understand how the catastrophe and the proportion of the rubble in Gaza and how, how it will ever be livable again. So there's just too many things that we still don't know. But Israel is clearly treading carefully in the sense that it knows that the North, which has been has had anti-tank missiles uh, from Hezbollah every day since this started pretty much, it knows that that is something that it needs to take into account. And like you said, there's just many other factors that also provides maybe certain opportunities for all these different countries. Also Qatar, who has funded Hamas and who also has an interest here in maybe helping 
figure out how to de-escalate and has a channel to Hamas. There are opportunities maybe for trying to incentivize a way to to put diplomacy into this. But right now, I think Israel is focused on keeping the front only in the south. The U.S. is helping Israel to try to focus all its energies only in the south. And there seems to be consensus that Hamas has to be kind of defanged. And so the question is, what price is going to have to be paid by all the different sides, and specifically in Gaza, for that to happen? So that these are open-ended questions that I don't have answers to. And of course, like all modern conflicts, this war hasn't been restricted to the physical battlefield. The information war has been a critical theatre as well. And in fact, I actually don't think I've seen a war quite so polarising or so inundated with misinformation from every side. So could you talk a little bit about that, how Israel is conducting itself online and how it's trying to influence the battle for hearts of mind at hearts and minds globally? Right. Well, the problem here is that Israel as an entity um, has kind of the IDF specifically in Israel in general has lost a lot of credibility as an entity that provides integrity in its reporting in times of war or times of conflict. The killing of Shirin Abu Akleh, the Palestinian-American journalist in Jenin, is a good example. It immediately put out videos and made claims that were very quickly taken. They walked them back and they didn't take responsibility to this day. And Israel has a horrible record of investigating all kinds of offenses and crimes against Palestinians. And so I think the IDF is very concerned with its image and with providing its narrative every time anything happens. The problem is that what ends up happening is that in many cases, for example, in this hospital situation, we still, again, like I said, we don't know exactly what happened. And some of the investi- initial investigations from journalists show that uh, it doesn't look like an Israeli airstrike. But for so many people who have followed Israel's various reactions and narratives, because as I said, it's, it's no longer credible. So it's hard to believe anything that it says. You could say the same for Hamas, of course. It's not a credible entity. Yes. It also warps and perverts information to its own interests. And so both sides really don't, per- you can't really rely on either side. And In this specific situation, the disinformation and the social media craziness that already existed before this war is only like, it's just on steroids now. So I personally, for example, I just take almost every single thing I see with a grain of salt and and it's very hard to know what's real and what's not. And the danger is that not only is it reinforcing kind of narratives on both sides, completely irrespective of the facts, but it is, as we saw in Chicago and in other places, it's reverberating around the world. People can seriously yes. get hurt. And I think Jews feel threatened across the world and Muslims and Palestinians and Arabs also in similar to the post 9-11 era. So this war, in addition to the regional implications, has huge global implications as well. And, and the, the disinformation is really just skyrocketing. Yes. So I'm aware that you're on a clock here, so I'll give you one more question and then we'll let you go. And I'd like to actually go back to the attacks that started this all. I mean, the problem with terror attacks like the one on 10-7 is that by design, they demand an immediate response, even if that response might not be wise. I mean, Osama bin Laden once bragged that all we have to do is send two Mujahideen to raise a piece of cloth on which is written Al-Qaeda in order to make the generals race there and cause America to suffer human, economic and political losses without their achieving of anything of note. There must be a real fear here that Israel is walking straight into the same kind of trap. Yeah, I mean, 
again, like it's very hard to know what's going on behind closed doors. And Israel does have a very potent and powerful military intelligence industry. And it has also made a fortune off of selling its technology and its cyber surveillance and all these things. So on the one hand, I'm sure that it has the capacity to strategize and figure out what what's happening on the other side. At the same time, the intelligence is only as good as its analysts or as its interpreters. And clearly there's been a huge failure. And clearly the political leadership in Israel is in disarray. So so maybe they have all the capacity, but they don't know what to do with it. And maybe, like you said, the kind of the level of shock and trauma and hubris as a result of Israel for so long acting with impunity and feeling invincible and really not paying much of a price for much of its uh, destructive policies that clearly didn't provide security in the long term for its own citizens. Like it clearly needs to rethink its approach, whether it's doing so, I don't know. But, you know, again, we have to wait and see. The scary part is that there is Israel, the world considers Israel to have the right to respond, and it does need to provide security. The people who are in this, who were displaced, I think there's already between the South and and threats in the North, 300,000 Israelis displaced from their homes right now. They're going to have to figure out how to provide security for them. And it's unclear, I mean, how it's going to be able to do that without removing Hamas as a threat. And it's unclear how it's going to be able to remove Hamas as a threat without causing serious disaster. So it's in a huge conundrum. And I really don't know what it's going to be able to do. And it's a very precarious situation. Joshua Martin there speaking to Meirav Zonshine in Israel. The past years have seen a long, slow process of normalization between Israel and the Gulf states, principally in response to the shared threat of Iran. Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates had already signed a peace treaty in 2020, and ongoing US-brokered negotiations with Saudi Arabia were heading, it was expected, in the same direction. Now, things look a lot more uncertain. Perhaps the hardest part of the political situation to understand is what might happen to the expanding normalization process if this war continues and escalates, or if the humanitarian situation in Gaza will make it politically untenable. I spoke to Aziz al Ghassian, a fellow at Lancaster University's Richardson Institute and associate fellow at the German think tank, the Center for Applied Research in partnership with the Orient. He spoke to me from the Saudi capital Riyadh, and I began by asking him if he believed that Hamas's purpose in launching its attack was to derail any potential deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. I think that was part of their mandate initially, because I think Hamas, after 2021, the May 2021 uh, operation, they said, declared that we will have a goal of stopping the projects of normalization. But personally, I, I don't think that Hamas, this was a direct result or a direct reaction to the ongoing negotiations that took place, that were taking place about Saudi-Israeli normalization. So because the scale of what Hamas did was, I mean, I'm no intelligence expert, but I don't think it would have it would have had to take a long time to plan this. So it fits in within their overall project, but I don't think it was a direct reaction to this. So you mean it's something that they've been planning to do for a while, 50th anniversary of yeah. 1973 war, and then they've just sort of put it in the context of the normalization, but it wasn't really the goal. Yeah, I, I do, because I think even looking at some of the content that they were publishing, it was all a reaction to... Not a reaction, it was a, a way of trying to also mimic 
the images of 1973, the, the crossing of the border, the fact that, for example, Anwar al-Sadat said, quote, I spoke to the Egyptians and they said, facilitations, the Israelis have lost their equilibrium, this kind of idea. And then they're saying the same thing that Israel should, there's a constant kind of romanticization of, of that in the, in, in the past and trying to look back and mimic it. I think that had a lot more to do than the Saudi-Israeli normalization, but nevertheless, it fits within their project. Hmm. And do you think that it will have an effect then on that process? I think the reaction of Israel does have an effect, certainly in the short term. And I think the reaction of Israel, I think the policy of the United States moving forward is going to determine how long in the future will this affect Saudi-Israeli normalization, in my opinion. Because I think right now, this is a polarizing juncture in our history. And I think it's also amplifying a lot of the cleavages that the region had in Arab-Israeli relations and also regional Israeli relations. So I just think it really begs the question of how different are we of a region? A lot of the times people are saying it's a different region Look how Israel is being integrated into the region. People are perceiving Israel differently. Israelis are perceiving the Arab world differently. And wow, people are being accommodating of each other. And while that's not incorrect, to be honest, I think there is more interactions. There has been more accommodation. But it's to a very certain extent, in my opinion. And do you think that accommodation is dependent on movement on the Palestinian issue? Or as we perhaps have perceived over the last period that it was happening in spite of it? No, I I think it happened as a result of the fundamental changes that were taking place or geopolitical changes that were taking place uh, in the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring was also a critical juncture and it was a dislocatory moment. In other words, it was a moment in, in our history where perceptions were changed. It was also very binary. And that's when people began to see Israel. What is going on here? We don't see Israel being as big of an enemy as as we thought they were. When you compare it, for example, to Saudi-Iranian relations and their kind of competition in Syria, competition in Yemen. And I'm trying to be as accurate as possible and nuanced as possible. But this difference was interpreted differently in Israel. Because I think in Israel, in in, in the collective psyche there, to a certain extent, By speaking to Israeli colleagues, they would expect Arabs just to say how bad Israel is, how horrible Israel is. And then all of a sudden you hear, you don't hear that. You you hear a little something more damped down, they say, but against that backdrop of the Arab Spring. So this was viewed as, I think we could be working with each other in the future. And that's when the statements and you could see the process of what I would call normalizing the discourse of normalization, beginning to gain traction in the wake of the Arab Spring. You put the normalization process of the last few years in the context of the much longer timeline of the Arab Spring. Yeah, it it came from that. It, It was an extension of that because what happened was that you begin to see then statements very early on from 2013, 2014, You start to see Israeli leaders, even Lieberman, I think he was a foreign minister of Israel, saying, we're going to have open relations with Saudi in a year's time, in in, in 12 to 18 months' time. This is in 2014. And this constant quest of trying to, to gain this normalization and to say, listen, 
we have a lot of things in common, namely Iran. And therefore, it's best to normalize relations. Not only is it just Iran, but also we have a lot of this tech, we have a lot of this ingenuity, we could help you. And these were the kind of things that were taking place. And you start to see these kind of headlines start coming out. Mm-hmm. And then you start to see kind of these series of speculative kind of headlines of people meeting together and right, right. arguing, agreeing that Iran is the issue. And then normalization happened, but between Saudi Arabia and Iran. But as is, if, if you situated in such a long timeline, then what yeah. do you think the effect of the Gaza war, which is really just beginning, what do, yeah. you, th- do you think the effect will be? if it has been situated in such a long timeline, it sounds as if you think that actually, even if it may have derailed the normalization for the moment, it will not derail it forever. I don't think it will derail it forever, in my opinion. I don't. Uh, I think the path to normalization was never direct anyway. It was always, it was always contingent. It was always, we're ready to have normalization when something happens. We're ready to have normalization if this is in particularly Saudi Arabia, if there is a settlement on the Palestinian issue. And then what I find very interesting is that a a lot of people leading up to the war have neglected the dangerous trajectory Palestinian-Israeli dynamics were were taking. And instead, they were focusing on the Saudi-Israeli normalization. And I think even in my discussions with many people, they seem to just not really care about what Saudi says about Palestinians. They seem to say like, ah, no, they, they don't, Saudis don't really care about them. It, let's focus on what Saudi Arabia is saying to Israel. And then mm. my response to them is saying, listen, you can't look at one without the other. Saudi, yeah. the, the structure of their responses, the type or the nature of their responses historically has always been, we are ready to make peace with Israel. We're ready to have normal relations with Israel when something like this happens. Do you think that when is coming closer because of the Gaza war or further away? Because if Saudi's insisting on this condition, then the question becomes, is this war going to make that condition more likely to be fulfilled or less likely? And therefore that will affect the timeline of normalization. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think this war illustrates a few things. Firstly, normalization without the Palestinian issue will not lead to a Palestinian-Israeli settlement. It will actually hinder it. Secondly, peace is now viewed through a security lens. As in, we've seen now the necessity of a Palestinian state, a necessity of, at the very least, a political horizon. And the reason, uh, one of the reasons that this happened is that there was an absence of a political horizon. There was an absence of this kind of hope And especially against the backdrop of extremists in the Israeli government saying, listen, you guys, you guys are going to leave. And also how the normalization was used inside Israel by some was, hey, you see this normalization? You see, guys, you Palestinians, these people that used to defend you and that used to support you are with us now. Mm. They're no longer with you. Right. And you're isolated. And this is how normalization was perceived domestically and received in Israel. This is also one of the reasons why Hamas would also say, okay, we have to stop this project of normalization. For mm. There is a tremendous amount of irresponsibility 
by some Israeli political elites by their treating this kind of proximity between them and other Arab states, especially from in the GCC. So mm. for me, I, I think that now normalization is going to have a, a, a different term. And by the way, Faisal, normalization already has a negative term. Normalization or tatbir or mutabbir is used as an insult in the region. So it was already viewed negatively. We've seen time and again from institutes doing polls, opinion polls, that yeah. normalization is not viewed very nicely and not very well accepted. And this war is going to make it even worse. Let's talk a bit about the politics inside Saudi Arabia. Okay. You get the impression that it is the Biden administration prior to this war that was yeah. pushing hard for the deal between Israel and Saudi and that the Grand Prince Mohammed bin Salman seems reluctant or at least reluctant to do it on Washington's timetable. Yes, I, I agree with you. I, I think this was indeed a, a, an American initiative. And I think the one of the reasons why it was an American initiative is because I think the Abraham Accords played a role in this, because I think the Abraham Accords shifted the burden of concessions from Israel to the United States and what they could get for normalization. So it wasn't Israel that has to concede something. It's like, well, what can you get from the United States? And that's what I think some Israelis have been focusing on, is that they've been focusing on going to the United States and saying, listen, make the Saudis an offer they can't refuse for normalization. And I think the Saudis sense that desperation. And they say, well, okay, if you really want normalization that bad, then this is the price for it. These are mm. the conditions. And the conditions are very steep. They're very big. Yeah, and, they are big. Yeah. Yeah. And just to illustrate the fact that they did not negate the Palestinian issue, they insisted on having major concessions for the Palestinians, and not as much as a state, but a significant component. What that component is, we still don't know. It was under negotiation still. But yeah. the point was that Saudis realized this. And then I think this whole window of opportunity of trying to get normalization to take place, that it has to be before March to get the window to get as many votes. I think, in my opinion, my reading of the situation was that it was a way of just trying to probably push Saudi into starting this, trying to nudge them even more. And yeah. I think Saudis were dragging their feet. They're not in a hurry. Just well, that's what hurry. I meant by it yeah. seems to be on Washington's timetable, because it yeah. does appear that Biden thinks that if he can get this going into next year's election, that will yeah. be a significant political win for him. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Tell yeah, me yeah. how you think the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran will be affected by this, because it seemed like they had reached some sort of detente, that they uh -huh. could kind of live together for the moment. Yeah, I don't know. Obviously, we don't know if this war is going to escalate. But yeah. if it were to do so, how mm. would that affect the relationship? Saudi is very good at balancing its position, and it's very good not being in the middle of the the different actors at war. That's why Saudi wants stability in the region, because it's going to be in the middle of it. Now, Saudi historically has kind of negotiated, dealt with Iran in a very pragmatic way, trying to de-escalate both Iran and the United States, because they don't want to be in the middle of this conflict. Now, they don't want to be in the middle of a conflict between Iran and the United States, let alone Iran and Israel. So yeah. they're always going to make sure, and in my opinion, they're always going to reassure Iran that 
they're not going to allow the U.S., certainly not Israel, to use its territory to launch against Iran. It doesn't want that. It doesn't mm-hmm. want that. It wants to avoid that. And therefore, we're starting to see the benefits of normalization between Saudi Arabia and Iran because they could communicate this a lot easier now. And I think this normalization was a very big turning of a, of a new page. I don't think that they're not wary of each other. Uh, to say that they're all, everything's hunky-dory. The Iranians haven't given up any of their influence in exactly. Vienna and in Syria. And they yeah. haven't given up any of that stuff to have exactly. good relations with Riyadh. Yeah. Exactly. And I think the Saudis understand that they won't. But it's just how do they deal with that influence? This mm. is the whole point. This is what they've changed. This is what they're working on. And I think for Saudi, they're beginning to also use an Arab front, a more united Arab front to say, listen, we are working on regional initiatives here. And you, Iran, can have a slice of the pie too. Let's all be part of the region and de-escalate so we could all benefit and live together. We can manage our conflicts through normalization, through... So you have, for example, the oil fields in the joint Saudi-Kuwaiti oil field. For example, Iran is disputing that. Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, no, they're, they're, they're insisting that it's theirs. But this didn't escalate into, for example, you're intervening in Arab affairs and you're going to that kind of pre-normalization rhetoric or kind of that Arab Spring kind of rhetoric. Uh, it wasn't, in other words, viewed in an existential manner. It was viewed as a conflict that could be resolved through the means and channels available. So there is a willingness to cooperate. And I think that willingness is, can be seen even in the past week in the war, because for the first time, MBS and Isi, the president of Iran, spoke on the phone. Yeah. So that means they're agreeing. Today, in the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, or Organization of Islamic Countries, the Muslim countries, the 57 Muslim countries, they, there was a side meeting between Saudi Arabia and Iran, the Saudi foreign minister and the Iranian foreign minister. So there's a lot of maintenance, I would say, of the relationship and maintenance of confining the conflict. And if it does erupt, if it does erupt, Saudi Arabia would have done its legwork and not being in the middle of it. That's interesting. I think I'm interested in this point about Saudi Arabia interfering in the region or getting involved in the region because uh-huh. this podcast is about um, the military and political strategy. And you never really think of Saudi as getting involved militarily in these wars of the Middle East. I mean, the northern Middle East, of course, Saudi was involved in the war in Yemen. But yeah. you don't imagine a scenario where Saudi Arabia could actually be involved in this war in some capacity. You're right. No, I don't see that. It's not in Saudi's interest and it's not in Saudi's nature to do it because Saudi is more of a, a maintaining of a status quo. Saudi is more of a defensive country. We have a very big piece of land, a lot of territory, but yeah. not a very big military. We have a, a, a smart military. We have a technically advanced military. But I think Saudi is becoming very wary that it doesn't want to overreach. And it's just simply not in Saudi's favor. This is just not how they do things. And I think personally... This is where you see Saudi pragmatism, historically, you know, of knowing when not to interfere. So, for example, when the war and when the revolution happened, the 1979 revolution happened, the Saudis were, were urging Saddam Hussein not to invade Iran. They were urging him not to invade Iran. They were saying, listen, they are right now going through a tremendous amount of political disturbance. And if you're going to invade them, 
you're going to unify them. Let them be kind of let them get busy with their own issues. And Saddam Hussein didn't listen to that. And he went in and unified them for the time being, for that time being. But I mean, that's just an illustration of Saudi mostly historically not being too rash to use military. And when they do use the military, they know where to use it. They didn't kind of do it in Syria, for example, because they can't. And I think knowing your limitations is certainly a strength in a region like this. So if you are trying to understand the almost certain escalation, because the ground war hasn't begun yet, yeah. but do you think that viewed from Riyadh, there is a sense that the more limited the conflict is, the more business as usual can continue? Or do you think that this really marks an inflection point in the way that Saudi will relate to Israel and the United States and so on? Yeah, let me just say just a few words on the nature of Saudi policy towards Israel. It's more towards Israel, not necessarily with Israel. And and there is a difference because the nature of Saudi policy towards Israel, it's more of a trilateral relationship rather than a bilateral relationship. And therefore, Saudi doesn't initiate these discussions on normalization. It's always a reaction. Normalization is a strategic policy for Saudi. And they've made this since the Arab Peace Initiative in 2000, almost 22 years ago. So because that's the way they view the Middle East, they view that peace is through normalization in the right way. So as a result, they're very reactive. I would say Saudi-Israeli normalization is dormant. And then when the conditions are right, it could be up again. So I don't think personally it's dead. I don't see Saudi saying, no, absolutely not. We're not going to normalize. They will say, listen, we can normalize, but what are the conditions? This is what Saudi has always been good at. They've always said yes, but, which makes them always open to peace, but not necessarily committing to normalization. In other words, they're always open to normalization, but not necessarily committing to it because they're saying, listen, if the conditions are right, then we're ready to go. And the problem is sometimes maybe they know the conditions aren't right. So it's a way of balancing their interests with their identity, their policies, and their obligations that they feel. Because today, even Faisal bin Farhan is saying, listen, what we're doing for the Palestinians is incumbent upon us and our Muslim identity. So that isn't going to go anywhere. Aziz Al-Ghassian speaking to me there from Riyadh. This has been The Lead from New Lines magazine. You can find our guests on Twitter at AliHashim underscore TV, at MayRavZ, and at Aziz Al-Ghassian. You can find our podcast episode, Hamas, Israel, and the PA at War, on our website, newlinesmag.com. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. That's it.